If you have your Bible here this morning, we're going to be preaching out of Revelation chapter 9. For those of you visiting today, just by way of reminder, I've been preaching through Revelation since the beginning of this year. And uh, we've had some high points and some low points going through the book. And we find ourselves in chapter 9 today. I heard about a church that was uh, searching for a pastor, and they had two candidates. And they had the first candidate one week to come and preach for them. And wouldn't you know, the subject that he picked to preach on, he preached on hell. And then the second pastor who was a candidate they were looking at came the next week, and doggone it, if he didn't also preach on hell the second week. Well, the committee met to make their decision, and they, they went with the first pastor. And when they told the news to the second man who was not offered the position, he wondered. He said, well, well, what was it about the message? Why did you select the first man? And the search committee chairman told him, well, when the first man preached on hell, there were tears in his eyes. He said, when you preached on hell, you acted like you were glad that people were going there. And so, today, I hope that I'm more like the first preacher. That I preach about the judgment of God and the wrath of God with a tear in my eye. Because this truly is a sober thing. And the Bible tells us that it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The title of today's message is, When All Hell Breaks Loose. In his book, Out of Darkness, evangelist George Osborne tells an amazing story of how God delivered him from the occult and, yes, even demon possession. George's descent into darkness began as a teenager one night when he was at a party. He was exposed to the occult when a friend brought out an Ouija board and he played along. He confessed, he said, I was gripped by a Ouija. I became addicted and started playing every day after school. He said, I even turned to petty theft using Ouija to help me. I would shoplift and ask the spirit controlling the board to help me. George Osborne believed that he was communicating with spirits. And one night in his bedroom, he invited one of those spirits controlling the board to come into his life. Here's what he said. He said, at first, nothing dramatic happened. But as the days went on, he said, I could feel there was another person living inside me, and I would carry on a dialogue with that other mind inside. George was later invited by a friend to go to church. He went reluctantly. And he noticed something out of the ordinary. As the pastor began to pray at the beginning of the service, something strange occurred. He wrote, As he prayed in the name of Jesus, and as soon as Jesus' name was mentioned, my body began to shake. And I was angry. George went home that evening. He was scared. He was unsure of what was happening to him. And through that time, the evil spirit that was tormenting him began to suggest worse things to him. In fact, the evil spirit began to suggest that George take his life. The demon said to him, why don't you lay across these railroad tracks and end your life? 
Well, as the train was coming, George lost his nerve, and at the last minute, he rolled off the train tracks as the train barreled past him. After that frightening ordeal, George said that he went to the home of the friend who had invited him to church. He explained what was happening to him, and he said, I, I need to be freed from this, and here's what he wrote. He said, there in my friend's living room, we read the Scriptures, I bowed and prayed to Jesus for the first time in my life, and I said, Jesus, help me. His testimony was this, whatever evil thing was inside of me left that house completely Left my body because of the power of Jesus. He said, I know that Jesus saved me. And when my friends saw the dramatic transition that Christ had made in my life, they too wanted to give their lives to Jesus. Praise God for that testimony today. We don't hear much about the reality of demonic possession in our modern world. But people like George Osborne are walking proof that the enemy is still working in our world today. 1 John 4.4 is still true today as it was the day it was written. Greater is he that is within me than he that is in the world. Now, of course, when Jesus went about his ministry some 2,000 years ago, he exposed the hiding places of the evil spirits, he rebuked and he cast out demons from men and women left and right as he went about his ministry. And friend, I don't believe for a second that since the time of Jesus that Satan or his minions have taken a day off. Satan and the demons are at work 24-7, 365. All you have to do is turn on the nightly news broadcast or look at the internet and see the evil going about in our world. Now, the Bible tells us that Satan roams this earth like a roaring lion, according to 1 Peter 5, 8. Paul says that we war against the cosmic powers and spiritual forces in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6, 12. Right now, a lot of those demonic forces are hidden in plain sight. They are actually being kept in check right now by the power of the Holy Spirit. But the Bible tells us that a day is coming during the tribulation period when demons will be allowed to run wild over mankind. Revelation chapter 9 is a passage in the Bible about the terrible time of tribulation in the future when God unleashes two judgments on this earth which will usher in a series of demonic invasions. Now, I would submit to you that this is probably the lowest and darkest chapter in the book. Because here in chapter 9, we have the fifth and the sixth trumpet judgments, and they bring about literal hell on earth. Now, just by way of reminder, so far in our journey through Revelation, we've seen the seven sealed judgments. And as those have come about on the earth, the Antichrist, and war and pestilence, famine and death and natural calamities have all ravaged the earth. In chapter 8, we saw the first four of the trumpet judgments blown. They brought unprecedented ecological disasters to the earth. A third of the oceans turned to blood. A third of the vegetation burnt up. A third of the fresh water turned bitter. And a third of the sun's light was darkened. 
Now, when chapter 8 closes, we see an angel flying across planet earth pronouncing woes to come about. And if you can believe it, the two that come in chapter 9 are worse than anything else the world has witnessed yet. If you are taking notes today, we notice in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 9, Trumpet number 5, and there we see the demonic locusts from the pit. The demonic locusts from the pit. Notice with me verse 1. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. With the first four trumpet judgments that come about, we see God's judgment against the physical universe. But with the sounding of the fifth and then the sixth trumpet, God's judgment shifts now into the spiritual realm. And we see the first of three ways that this Judgment of the fifth trumpet unfolds. We read there in verses 1 and 2 about how the, the pit was unlocked. Now, who is or what is this star from heaven? Well, it is not a celestial body. It's not a meteor. It's not an asteroid. It's not anything uh, like that. It's rather not a what, but it is a who. And the reason we know that this is a creature is because verse 1 tells us that it was given to him the key to the bottomless pit. Now, we don't have to guess who the identity of this fallen creature is. It's none other than Satan. We know this because in Isaiah 14, which tells of the original fall of Satan, Lucifer there is referred to as, O day star, son of the dawn. And then in verse 15, But you are brought down to Sheol, the far reaches of the pit. So, this is Satan, and he has been given a key to go unlock this bottomless pit. Now, the Greek word there for pit is the word abusos. It's actually where we get our English word abyss. And the way you need to think about this is, this is akin to a maximum security prison where God has incarcerated some of the most vile, perverted, and wicked of all fallen angels. We have already made a reference to this through the ministry of Jesus. You remember when Jesus went to a region called Gadara. And when he made landfall there, he encountered a man who was possessed by a legion of demons. And as Jesus cast out the demons from this man, he carried on a conversation with those demons. And in Luke chapter 8, verse 31, look at what they say to Jesus. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. So even the demons on the earth in Jesus' day knew about this place called the abyss and they did not want to be cast there. And that should tell you really how bad it truly is that now the key has been given to the enemy, he unlocks it, and all hell breaks loose. Here are demons that have been chained up for thousands of years and now they are given a get-out-of-jail-free card so that they can now inflict Terrible pain and suffering on mankind. So the pit is unlocked. And then we see in verse 3, the plague unleashed. Verse 3, join me there. 
it says, Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power, like the power of scorpions of the earth. And they were told not to harm the grass of the earth, or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. For their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days people will seek death and will not find it. And they will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, their teeth like lion's teeth, they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. We see here that in John's description of this demonic horde that is unleashed from the pit, they are described like the movement of a swarm of locusts. Now, here in the United States, we have seen locust invasion before. In fact, in 1875, the largest locust swarm in American history devastated the Midwest. And you can see those areas highlighted on the map. This massive swarm stretched, get this, 1,800 miles long and 110 miles wide. The states of Kansas, Nebraska, South Dakota, North Dakota, Iowa, Minnesota, Missouri, and Colorado were all devastated by this massive swarm of locusts that came and devoured all of the grain and crops of the fields. Eyewitnesses who lived through that day tell us that when the swarm of locusts came and blew in, they were moving in like a big cloud that was large enough to even blot out the sun. Now, the scene here that John describes, he likens that demonic horde that comes from the pit to that of locusts. Now, symbolically, they moved like locusts, but physically and literally, I think we can say that these are real demons coming from a real pit to torment real people. Now, we know that these are not Literal locusts, but they are demon hordes for several reasons. Let me give you those reasons. First, we read in our text that unlike actual locusts, these creatures are not permitted to touch vegetation. And then secondly, we're told later on in verse 11 that these creatures have a king. We read his name there. His name was Abaddon or Apollyon. That name means destroyer. Well, if you do some study in Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 27, we're told in that passage that locusts don't have a king. But these do. In other words, they follow the leadership of somebody in a greater position of authority than them. And then thirdly, we read the physical description that John gave these demons. They have all the indications of intelligent creatures. For example, crown of gold. That speaks of their authority. Faces like men, that speaks of their ability to communicate or to speak. Women's hair, that speaks of their seductiveness. Breastplates of iron, that speaks of their formidability or their strength. Now as we read this passage, there's two things about this judgment that you should notice. Number one, you should notice that it's targeted. 
Verse 4, we're told that it is only given to the demons the ability to torment those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. In other words, the unbelieving masses in difference to the 144,000, the Jewish evangelists who've been sealed by God already and supernaturally protected to preach the gospel during this time period. And then we also notice not only is this judgment targeted, but it's also timed. In verse 5, we're told that they were allowed to torment for five months. And I imagine that if God allowed this judgment to go on any longer, mankind would literally lose its mind. By the way, if you do an interesting study into locusts, you find out that the average lifespan of a locust is five months. Now, these five months will be unspeakably horrific. We read there in our passage, imagine people being so tormented by demons that they desire to commit suicide as a way to end the suffering, but God won't let them die. Just like George Osborne, who was tormented by that demon who told him to throw himself in front of those speeding train. Listen to what David Jeremiah wrote about this passage. This is sobering. He said, quote, Think of the fifth trumpet this way. As if every prison threw open its doors and set free the vilest offenders known to man, rapists, murderers, and the deranged. That's what this trumpet unleashes. Only these offenders are ancient demons from the darkest recesses of earth's bowels. People will be so afflicted by these evil spirits that they will look for relief from the pain through death, but even that mercy will elude them. Imagine the agony when some attempt suicide and find it impossible. The gun doesn't fire. The poison is ineffective. The leap from the tall building breaks every bone, yet they still keep breathing. Unable to die and turn off their minds, these victims will find there are torments worse than death. You know, there are times when death is merciful. There are times when Death is a release from pain and suffering, but imagine these alive during this time will wish for death and it will not come. You know what that's a lot like? It's a lot like hell. Because when we read about hell in the Scriptures, we find that it it goes on forever and ever. There's mental and physical torment and they will hope for an end and the end will never come. Not, Not only do we see in this passage... Do we see the pit unlocked and the plague unleashed? But then thirdly, verse 11 and 12 talk to us about the prince unveiled. The prince unveiled, verse 11, they have as a king over them. The angel of the bottomless pit, and his name is in Hebrew, Abaddon. In Greek, he is known as Apollyon. Verse 12, the first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. So, keep in mind that This prince who leads these demonic hordes is not Satan. Satan doesn't come up from the bottomless pit. He comes down to unlock it. But apparently, we see here that this is some kind of satanic lieutenant. Apollyon, or the destroyer as his name is known in English. And he will marshal his fiends across the globe to unleash all kinds of chaos and suffering. You know, as I read this passage, I thought about our world. For so many years, the progressives, the liberals, and the secularists, they have wanted a world without a church. 
Listen to me. How much does this world hate the church of Jesus Christ? There are a group of people in our world who have desired and will work for a world without a church. Well, guess what? The day of that is soon coming, and when it gets here, they will have a world without a church, and I can guarantee you they won't be happy with the result, for the result will be a literal hell on earth. Right now, the only thing holding back a tidal wave of demonic activity is the Spirit of God and the church that acts as a restrainer here on this planet. See, this world hates God. Listen to me. Our culture hates the name of Jesus Christ. The enemy hates the church. And if they had the opportunity to remove the church from the earth, they would do it. Because the church acts as the conscience to the state. The church stands up and says, no, 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 this is evil, this is wrong. The church stands against the homosexual revolution. And the church stands against the abortion problem that we have. The church stands as a light in a dark place, as salt in a wound that is decaying. And friend, I'm telling you, if it wasn't for the church and the Spirit of God here on the earth, we would have this hell on earth that is coming one day. They ought to be glad that there is a moral voice. They ought to be glad that God's people are standing here as a dam holding back the torrent of evil that's about to be broken through and come upon this world. So we see, number one, the demonic locusts from the pit. And I wish that the passage ended there. But there's one more woe. And we find it in verse... 13 through 21, we see devilish legions from the Euphrates. Demonic locusts and devilish legions. Now the pit has been opened. The fifth trumpet has been blown. Two woes have passed, which means there's two more left. It's hard to imagine, but with the sixth trumpet being blown, things are going to go even worse. Now, just like the fifth trumpet, the sixth trumpet unfolds in three scenes. Notice them with me. We see in verse 13 the release of four angels. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. Read that last part slowly. We're released to kill a third of mankind. Who are these angels? Well, we see that God gives them permission to be released during this time of tribulation. We're not told anything about the background of these angels. Theologians have speculated over the years Many think that they are archangels in Satan's hierarchy of evil spirits. Some even suspect that these angels once controlled demonic activity over four major world empires. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. And that would make sense considering their placement there beside the Euphrates River. Now, why they are chained up here at the Euphrates is not made clear by our text. But we can note that the Euphrates is the most referenced river in the Bible. 
You'll remember in Genesis 2 that when God created the Garden of Eden, the Bible tells us there that the Euphrates flowed through it. Later on in chapter 11 of Genesis, when Nimrod founded the city of Babylon, he did it on the banks of the Euphrates. And from Babylon has come every form of idolatry, sorcery, astrology, and false religion that has spread across our world. And so it appears that the Euphrates and its connection to Babylon is a symbolic way of saying that this is a spiritual headwater of idolatry that has gone out and corrupted all of mankind. Now the most sobering detail about this judgment is we read it there at the end of verse 15 that these angels are given authority to kill one-third of the remaining population of the earth. Now I'm not a math major and I really struggled in math in school. But if, if my calculations are correct, listen to this. According to Revelation 6, 8, the fourth seal judgment, when that judgment took place on the earth, one-fourth of the world's population was destroyed. That means that now with this judgment being completed, over half of the world's population will be wiped out. That's just two judgments. Two judgments take over half of the world's population. And friend, we haven't even got to the last seven, the seven bold judgments, and they're even worse. So we see here the release of four angels, but then our judgment unfolds even more with the ranks of a formidable army. Notice verse 16. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. And I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision, and those who rode them. They were breastplates, the color of fire and sapphire and sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. And by these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and the smoke and the sulfur coming from their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, And by means of them, they wound. Now John mentions the number of this formidable army that these four angels lead across the earth. If you do some calculations there, it's 200 million. Now, when John was alive in the first century and he wrote this prophecy, there weren't even 200 million people on planet earth. Now just to give you an idea of how big that army is, 200 million is twice as many troops as the Axis and Allies powers combined when they were at their peak strength during World War II. So this would be an army unseen in the annals of war that's controlled by these four demonic lieutenants that move them across the face of the earth, bringing devastation and war and bloodshed as they go. Now, scholars have debated for a long time about how we should interpret this army. Is this a demon army? Is this pure symbolism? Is this just figurative language that John is using? Or, some scholars argue that this is actually to be interpreted as a literal 200 million man army, perhaps coming from nations like China and Japan. In fact, some have pointed out the connection with this passage later on in Revelation 16 and verse 12 where we're told there that the Euphrates River dries up and the kings of the east are allowed to pass over and take this big fighting force with them. Some say that John's description of the horsemen is a a first century person's 
attempt to describe modern machines of warfare. Imagine if you were a person living in 1825 before electricity, before the internet, and before cars and computers, and you were to bring that person to the 21st century and give them a tour of what life was like and then transport them back and say, all right, describe in your own language all the things that you've seen and heard. That's what John is doing here, some commentators say, that John is looking ahead and he sees the, the modern implements of war and in his own symbolic language he's describing these massive armies moving across the earth led by these four angels. So the commentators are divided. Is this a demonic army or is this a human army? And I'm going to suggest to you, maybe it's both. What I mean is that this is a human army. It literally is made up of 200 million men. But they are organized and controlled by demonic forces. We've just seen demons unleashed on the earth. How could it be that all of these would be possessed by demons and led by Apollyon and all these fierce and fallen angels to go against the earth? What a terrible time to be alive. Praise God that the church will not be on the earth during these times. If you can't say amen right there, something's not clicking this morning. But that's the ranks of a formidable army. And then we finish this passage. Look at this. The rebellion of full anarchy. Verse 20. The Bible says, The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, watch, did not repent of their works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. You know, as you read this passage, one would think that having endured the sealed judgments and now these trumpet judgments, that men and women would be brought to their knees in repentance, but instead the Bible says that as the tribulation intensifies, that the heart of man will only grow harder toward God. There's an old saying that goes like this, the same sun which melts the snow hardens the clay. We have a hard time imagining how, how can somebody's heart be so hardened against God that they... They wouldn't repent in the face of such unbelievable wrath and judgment. And I'm telling you that that can happen right now in the pews of this church. The Bible tells us not to harden our heart against the Word of the Lord. When you hear the Word of God and harden your heart and you say, no, that's not for me. And you resist the Holy Spirit. You know what you do? You harden your heart. And you do that enough times and guess what? The Holy Spirit... Stops working in your life. And then you get to the point where you're so hard that you're beyond repentance. Warren Wisby commented on this passage. He said, The most frightening aspect of Revelation 9 is not the judgments that God sends, but the sins that men persist in committing even while God is judging them. By the midpoint of the tribulation, as we come to this, Humanity has reached a new low. Do you do this? You watch the news or you keep up with what's going on in the world through Facebook or the internet and you see something happen and you're like, have we lost our minds as a nation? 
You see something so unspeakably evil, something so incredibly perverse that's happening in our society, and you think, we have lost our minds as a people. We can't go any lower. When you read this passage, you know what it reminds us? Oh, we're going a lot lower. In fact, let's just consider some of the sins that are mentioned here in this passage as a tidal wave of evil moves across the whole world during this time. The Bible says that they will not repent of demonism. What is demonism? That is the worship of evil spirits and demons. It's insane to think that people will worship demons considering the fact that they've just spent five months being tormented by them. But you know what Paul said? 1 Timothy 4.1 But the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. You know, when men choose to reject God, the tragedy is not that they will believe in nothing. The tragedy is they can believe in anything. And when your eyes are darkened and you don't know the truth and you don't have a relationship with the true and living God, you can get off into some really dark things. They won't repent of demonism. The Bible says they won't repent of idolatry. You know, listen to me. There's no true atheists in the world, are there? There's no atheists in the world because if men do not worship the true and living God, they will worship a God of their own making. And during the tribulation period, they'll turn to their idols for hope and comfort rather than the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Bible says they won't repent of murders and thefts. You know, as I read that, I thought, let's take into account all the wars the natural calamities, the famines, the earthquakes, the wildfires, the pollution as it spreads across the earth. It's likely that during that time period, people are going to get desperate. Desperate for water. Desperate for a scrap of bread. And they will resort to stealing and killing just for the next meal. Does humanity have that potential? Jesus says they do. Listen to what He said in Matthew 24. He said, Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. He says also in that passage, they won't repent of sorceries. The Greek word in the text is actually pharmacia, where we get our word pharmacy. And it makes sense that during the tribulation period, people are going to delve deeper into drug addiction. You think drug addiction is bad now. You think we have an opioid crisis. You wait till the floodgates of evil are opened up and there is going to be drug addiction because people will be looking for a way to escape the pain and the problems of life. And by the way, don't you know that drugs is just a gateway for the enemy to get a hold of somebody's heart? Drug addiction, alcohol addiction is just another way that, that Satan uses it as a gateway to get in somebody's life. And then the Bible says here that they won't repent of their sexual immorality. And that makes sense because when man no longer fears God, every type of perversion is fair game. Now I know this was not encouraging preaching today, but it is necessary because it is in the Word of God. And sometimes the medicine may be bitter, but it's the very thing that we need. So what are we to apply about a sobering passage like this? And trust me, please believe me, church, I don't take pleasure in preaching things like this. I'm just trying to be a faithful witness. What are the applications? 
well, the first thing that I hope that you come away with is realize the reality of demonic activity in our world. We are fighting an invisible war right now, and later on, what was invisible will be visible. Another application we can take away from this is as I read this, oddly enough, I read that passage and it drives me to worship. You say, why? I say, because as I read the wickedness and the evil and the darkness that's going to come upon this world, and I see that, I am more drawn to Christ than ever because I rejoice knowing what I have been saved from. I see where I should be. That should be me during the tribulation period. That should be you. None of us are worthy of the grace and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as I read that, I think, thank you, Jesus, for going to the cross for me. Thank you, Jesus, for every drop of blood that was spilt on my behalf. Thank you, Jesus, because now I know what I've been saved from. Praise God. And then, the last thing that I see here, Maybe the closest thing we could compare this to be a prisoner in a Holocaust concentration camp. And yet, even in those dark places, people have turned to God. And if you're sitting here today and you don't know Christ, there's still hope for you. Listen to this. Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was a man who was taken to the very darkness that I've just described here. He was a political prison in communist Russia. He was also a Christian man. He was thrown in prison because of his stance for Jesus Christ. He was in that concentration camp for many years in, in Siberia. He was forced to listen to this work 12 hours a day. His diet was a paltry Maggoty loaf of bread every day. His body became so racked with disease that he knew that he could not last much longer in that concentration camp. One afternoon, he said that he couldn't work anymore. He was so much in pain and, and, and so just hopeless that he sat down. He thought, I can't go on any longer. God, take me now. He said, at that precise moment when he felt like there was no hope, an old man, who himself was also a Christian, hobbled over to where Alexander Solzhenitsyn was sitting there in the dust. And he didn't say a word to, the old, to Alexander. He just looked down at him. And he took his cane in his hand. And in the dirt, he made two marks in the shape of a cross. Mr. Solzhenitsyn said, when I looked down and I saw the cross in the dirt, he said, I was reminded what my Lord went through and that I have the hope to keep believing and keep going forward. And just so I'm telling you this morning, the cross is man's only hope today. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone, child of God. You don't have to fear this judgment because Jesus Christ took the wrath that you and I deserve. And He's the only hope. He is the 
place where we can go to flee from the wrath that is to come upon the earth. If you haven't surrendered to the cross, what are you waiting for? And if you have, here's the last application. If you do know Jesus, you know what a passage like this should do? It should make you that much more passionate about reaching the lost for the Lord. What did Paul say in 2 Corinthians? He says, Therefore, because of the wrath of God that is to come, we persuade men to come to the cross. Please know that God is a God of love, but God is also a God of justice and holiness and wrath. And He proved His love and His holiness when Jesus hung and bled on that cross. When He shed His blood for you and me. When He got up out of the tomb victorious to reign forevermore. 